Welcome to Guru Live, coming to you from BAFTA's Piccadilly headquarters. I'm Rihanna Dillon. In this session, we cover casting. How do you find great contributors, build their trust and get the most out of them? Three leading casting producers offer their advice. Your host is Duncan Coates, Director of Programmes at Betty TV. So um, I'd like to start with the start, really. I mean, where, when you, as a sort of casting team, when you first get a brief that lands on your desk, we need to find a cast for such and such, especially a new show, where do you begin? So I do a lot of, I've done a lot of first series where we get a brief and we all look and we think, right, where, where do these people go? What do they do? How do we let them know we're making a new programme? And that I use the term, it's kind of targeting people. It's, it's allowing someone in Helston to know and someone in Barnsley to know, not just London and Manchester. And so we sort of put a plan together and think, someone who's into dancing or got to dance isn't going to be looking at the same materials or copy as a parent for child genius. So we sort of have a little brainstorm. And it's, really, it's good for researchers and APs and entry-level people to, to use their mouse there and think, well, where would I go and how could I get that information into their hands? And one thing I found interesting with child genius was, you know, I, um, I, I don't have a gifted child. Um, I don't know. But I had to quickly crib up and learn about the world of uh, gifted children. And um, you become mini experts in the, in the field you're dealing with. You have to be knowledgeable. You have to talk their language. So you do a little bit of research. Don't, don't act like you just don't know their world. Look it up, you know, and, and learn a bit about their world. And so with Child Genius, what was interesting was the schools ended up being a fantastic tool for all four series. We've got a new series going out uh, this month. And as you can imagine, the head teachers are amazing conduit just to get that information to parents. Um, if they want to. But what we found interesting was what hobbies do gifted children do? And, and it turns out gifted children don't do team sports, but they love archery, fencing and golf. <laughs> Who knew? Why do, you, why do they like those things? It's because it's, it's solo sport. It's disciplined. It's results driven quite quickly. There's focus, whether it's literally like, you know, an archery target or a golf hole. So we go there and lo and behold... Um, you know, we find some interested families. Also things like reciting poetry. Um, Testing yourself as a child is really important. So if you, you know, some children like to go to Lambda teachers and learn the whole of Jabberwocky or learn all the Shakespeare sonnets. So you have to contact around the country 500 Lambda teachers. So what's, what's about is not just thinking, of course people are everywhere, but where do you start? So um, whereas with something like Bring Back Borstal, which you may or may not have seen, was about young criminals and doing a living history project experiment where we took them back to a 1930s original Borstal, they're not at the supermarkets, they're not on social media, um, they're, uh, you know, young criminals in and out of YOIs, Young Offenders Institutes. So we had to walk the streets and go around towns looking for them and talking to people and I'm sure... Um, Lucy will take over a bit about street casting. But just to say, you know, street casting, people... You can't just go to someone and say, are you a criminal? Do you want to be on telly? How do you ask a bunch of lads um, if they know someone, you know, without offending them? Because, again, if you're doing Biggest Loser or uh, Bring Back Bossel, you can't just go, you should be on this programme. So, you know, it's always about... very. Each programme is very different. Mm. And do you... Um, 
I can see it's very difficult if you've got no. I mean, if you're making a program about stamp collectors, obviously you go to an organisation about stamp yeah. collectors. But so you've got to think very laterally yeah. about where these sorts of people might kind of come together, the sort of interest they might have. And as researchers, you'll find you'll get little. You'll learn as you go along. You think, oh, that was really useful. Oh, there's community associations uh, are really good at you know being busybodies who know everybody in the local town. They're really useful. Um, but yeah, so. Families are very difficult because a family technically is anywhere, you know, um, you could go and hang outside Waitrose, I don't know, if you wanted a certain type of family. That, bring, that brings me on to yeah. actually Gogglebox, because in a way you've got, that's, you're just looking for, and this is the, so must be the hardest thing of all, you're just looking for good characters. They've got no particular kind of interest, they're not in the, the, the programme for a particular reason like Child mm-hmm. Genius. So where on earth do you... Where do we start? Yeah, where do you start with that? So the thing about casting Gogglebox is that we, uh, we kind of go against the grain. And I'll probably tell you how we cast Gogglebox. is quite different to how Mel and Kat probably cast a lot of their shows in the sense that we have never, ever had an application process. We've never encouraged people to come to us to be on the show. We've always gone out and found people ourselves. Um, and theoretically, we should have the whole of the UK to find brilliant people to watch telly. But actually, when you start meeting people and getting people on camera, it whittles it down really, really quickly because actually what they do is really, really hard. And what we're looking for is people and families and relationships of people watching telly together that can sustain not just one series, but three, four, eight, nine, ten, hopefully. So it's really, really tricky. But what we do at Gogglebox, we solely street cast. Um, we have brilliant ca- um, casting researchers and casting assistant producers who travel the country, just going out and meeting people. Um, they look for recommendations, they kind of follow their noses. Sometimes we go to events if we think, you know, we might find slightly different people, but our general rule of casting is, if you wouldn't normally see them on telly, if they don't want to be on telly, then we want them. (laughs) So I spend a lot of my time convincing people to come onto Gogglebox that would never, ever, ever want to be on telly. And I think, hopefully, that's the success of it. You know, you're not seeing people that you see on other shows. Um, And I think the main thing about what we're looking for once we find people is their relationships. So it's not the guy who's down the pub who tells the loudest jokes and the funniest jokes and has got the biggest laugh. Actually, it's quite the opposite. It's people, you know, you're looking for really intricate relationships that will bounce off each other and provide very subtle humour that actually, in the edit, will work really well for us. So we do a lot of recce's to find the people that we end up putting on the show. So we try and get people on camera quite quickly. Um, we'll come to, to, we'll come to recce's Sorry, in a moment. Along, no, that's yeah. fine. Because <laughs> recce's is a really sort of key part of it. Yep. And for things like Big Brother, which is obviously completely other, yes. you're, you're dealing with celebrities, it's a very different kind of way yeah, of doing it's, things. Yeah, it's very different actually from both those shows in that in Big Brother there is almost no brief. You can have anyone that you want from kind of an old jazz singer to a Muslim to a stripper. You just want to get the biggest mix in possible. So for us, it's about casting the net as wide as possible. So social media is brilliant for us. Like increasingly, um, we are using that to cast from things like Facebook, boosted posts, having a really good social media presence across Twitter, things like targeting on Instagram as well. It's really important you have a presence, particularly if you're coming through um, as a casting researcher or AP now. Um, We also did a tour slightly differently from street casting in that we did a lot of research about um, some of the busiest towns, some of the kind of worst reputation towns, and we sent in a big team to get into the pubs and the bars and uh, anywhere that a lot of people, there's a lot of footfall, 
and just going out and meeting them. And we went, you know, Scotland, Ireland to really deep South Wales, everywhere we could go. So we've got the biggest mix of people in order to cast kind of a really diverse, interesting uh, series of Big Brother. I did, sorry, I didn't mean to say it's celebrity-based. They become sort of celebrities. Yeah, eventually, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, but I can see that behind the scenes, there's lots of work that needs to, or lots of thought that needs to be done in terms of where you're likely to find these people, the sorts of areas you're likely to find, the kind of places they're likely to gather, the sorts of interests they'll have. So it's really, so there's a sort of research thing involved and really understanding your kind of area um, to start narrowing down before you actually go out there and start talking to all those and those of people. There's, there's yeah. a lot of thinking at that level. Yeah, sometimes you can have a wish list, which I'm sure we're all used to. And this year, I really wanted an African princess. <laughs> mm. So we did loads of work into finding that and we met some amazing um, women through that. But you do have little... Um, nuggets of people that you want to find and you have to do like Mel said really specific research to find those people um, but for us it's about having a massive pool of which we can start putting together personalities and see how they'll interact and and that's how it works for us and who's coming up with those ideas who's coming up with those sort of thoughts where we need to go to Wales and we need to sort of look at this particular area or we need to look at these particular kind of interest groups who's Who's generating well, it's, that? Is it's it? me, really, from the start. So I start right before the casting process and look at different areas we can go to, the types of people we want this year, and we'll work very closely with the creative directors and, and actually with the channel, because we work very closely with Channel 5. Uh, Big Brother's been running for, God, 16 years now, so mm. they're very involved. Um, and we will create a really kind of watertight strategy <coughs> and then use that for the next kind of five months until we get sign off. You talked about social media. I just wanted to what extent on a team, uh, when you're kind of thinking about who you employ to work on your casting team, to what extent social media is a really, is these days a very, is it a very important thing that someone's really well versed in social media, is really great at using it, is very interested in using it and has a great grasp of it? Yeah, I mean, I, you want different types of people in your casting team. I almost cast my casting teams. So within this um, production, I had a targeting team, and they were really fantastic with people. They had really rich social medias, um, uh, accounts, and they had a really good black book from other shows. Um, so they had a really good knowledge. Then I had um, some really regional people, so a guy that knew the north of England really well, um, a Scottish guy, and so different skills should be brought to a casting team I think sometimes and then we had a kind of online team which again kind of scoured through all the videos that came through so in that we just wanted people that had really good quick casting noggin which you can't buy sometimes. Okay. Yeah we uh, stuff I do which I sort of put in the bracket of popular factual or factual entertainment um, I agree with Lucy most people we put on a program are the ones that don't want to do, don't think they want to do it so um, again with Child Genius we um, I, w I employ someone who I, as casting executive, I oversee a couple of shows at the same time, um, and I've been 17 years doing casting and also through to edit, but um, I now have someone I would trust to, to run the day-to-day -day and have all the, you know, but I would write a casting plan saying, 
this is where we're going to go and this is what we would like, the sort of people we'd like to find. So everyone has a clear steer at the beginning, especially series, first series are very hard. Imagine you don't know what the programme is, you've got no um, previous to compare it to, you know, um, people are much more wary of a first series. You don't know what the title is yet and you're saying, hey, would you like to put your child on this programme? Um, so we have to have a very clear sort of uh, plan of attack, really. Um, and we tend to look for... Um, press stories through um, a tool called LexisNexis, which collates all the, you know, the world's news, if you like, from tiny little boxes in the Yorkshire Evening Post or something, you know, so you can find the children who have got A-levels early or maths GCSE early or, you know, little press stories. And it's um, very, again, it's about someone, I, I need someone who can approach those parents and say, in the right way, we're making this programme, are you interested? Um, so it's a bit more focused like that. Um, we, we, you know, we do have applications come in, but invariably when we look at our final lineup, most of the team will take, uh, will, will feel very proud because whether they're researchers, APs or producers, they'll kind of go, I, I, I read this tiny story somewhere and I contacted that parent and they're in it and now they're rocketing through the series and doing brilliantly. So I think it's important um, on that way that people take some ownership and feel really proud of the end, you know, these brilliant people. And what, what, what are you, well, all of you in your kind of different areas, what are you kind of looking for in... Um, in, in your sort of characters? What are, your, what are the key, when you're going out and speaking mm. to people and meeting people, what are, what are the key kind of, are there three or four things that you're always sort of on the lookout for? Yeah, I think with our team, we are, I think, on a base level, and I'm sure everyone will agree with this, we're looking at, initially, are they engaging? Do, are we interested in what they're saying? Are they good characters? Um, but for us, then we start looking at where we think they will provide humour. Do they feel interesting and different compared to, obviously, I suppose what I should say is what's different casting Gogglebox now than it was back three years ago. So now we're trying to add to a cast. So we're kind of looking at people that feel different, feel interesting. Um, but as I was saying, we do move into doing recce quite quickly. I know we're going to talk recce later because so much about our casting is about relationships. Mm. And quite often with street casting, you might meet a mum or a dad, or a teen, and actually what we need to know quite quickly is what their relationship is as a family, because that's what's going to make it work for us on the show. So we try and we spend a week, two weeks in an area, and we will within days of meeting someone on the street who we think has got potential, interesting, made us laugh, a bit quirky, something about them, we will then go and meet them at their house very, very quickly to meet the whole household. So it's slightly different in that sense because we are looking for relationships. But I guess even with um, even something like Child Genius, for example, you're interested in not just people, what they're like in an interview, but how they're going to be in actuality as well. So I guess the recce is very important in terms of not just going to meet them, but just filming some imagine some stuff with them, with the family, seeing how they interact. About eight years ago, a casting tape would be bringing someone to your office with a pot plant behind their head and you'd interview them on some little handy cam and you'd splice it together and it'd be a jump cut of sync, just them talking for like five minutes or something. Now, you're expected to come back with these little beautifully shot, beautifully crafted little films that show actuality, interview, insight, funny, emotion, everything in a two-minute package because two minutes is the maximum that anyone will ever give attention to your, your casting tapes, which we'll talk a bit more later. So, um, yes, when we film, it's a sense, like, with um, Back in Time for Dinner, I've done and Back in Time for the Weekend and Child Genius, they're all families. You've got to get everybody gathered. You have got to let the camera roll 
role and see where all that warmth and humour and dynamics are in the relationship. And invariably with families, unfortunately, one or two, quite often a teenage boy who just can't think of anything worse than being on telly with his mum and dad, will pull himself out, therefore pull the family out. So you are constantly liking someone that's not quite right with families. To find a, a family to carry a six-part series like Back in Time for Dinner or families on Gogglebots that are beloved, it is such hard work. Mm-hmm. Families are really difficult. And can, can you tell quite quickly whether someone, yeah. whether you meet instantly. individuals or family, yeah. can you tell quite quickly as whether it's going to work or not? I think yeah. instantly, in terms of turning a camera on, yeah. the families that work for us, and I'm sure for everybody, are the families that you turn the camera on and nothing changes. They are completely unaware, they are unedited, they aren't, they don't change their behaviour. And as soon as you see this brilliant family you've met wherever you are, and then you go in the home and you press record and you're still getting this same family with no kind of infection of where what, what's going on, that's when you know they're going to work. Mm. Because you know they'll always deliver and not try and try and deliver they are just who they are which Mm. is brilliant it's hard to find really hard to find and with budget shrinking we use skype a lot now if it's not families it might be couples or brothers and sisters or individuals Mm. skype has been a fantastic tool that everyone can use and you know you can persuade an elderly lady to get herself a skype account she might be a bit oh um you know but ultimately say you can do it come on pat um but what is brilliant (laughs) is get your son-in-law around to help you but what's brilliant is Instead of tra- we used to go all the way up to Newcastle and film someone at home and then go, hmm, they were a bit, a bit less engaging than we thought. And you've come all the way back down, you've, that's a whole day out of your schedule. Now, the beauty of Skype and you know, recordable Skype is you can do half an hour, cut it down on iMovies really quickly, discuss them with your colleagues and go, what do you think about this person or this family or this couple? Um, if you are doing um, applications from around the country, that has been a real time saver. Mm. And I would expect everyone on a research and AP just to get with that, and I'm sure you all could. You know. I think, Kat, about your the game show series, are there ever uh, times when actually the last person you'd expect to be good on telly or to work on telly sort of becomes the best? This clip is meant to demonstrate casting idiots for television, <laughs> and it's a little comedy game show I did for um, ITV2, and it was uh, 10 episodes, 100 contestants, and the idea is they had 50 lives to complete, complete five really impossible challenges. So what we were looking for in the contestants was that they would react really well, they would get frustrated, they would give it 100%. Now, this chap was the biggest nuisance you've ever experienced in your entire life. Uh, he was really difficult to cast, really difficult to get his paperwork back. Um, when uh, we were on site... He hurt himself on every game. He broke all the games. He actually uh, broke a £1,000 microphone in his helmet and had a hissy fit. But um, over an hour's episode, he was the story of the whole show. We didn't even feature the other nine contestants because he was, obviously, he was a health and safety officer. He was really accident prone. And as you can see on each game, he just provided this absolute hilarity because he kept um, messing up and hurting himself. So I guess the point is about this, and actually this works on Big Brother as well, is that... Sometimes the trickiest contestants and, and the hardest people to get on screen become the best, become the best contestants, basically the best uh, uh, cast, because uh, 
you just, again, like you wouldn't expect them to be on TV or they have something about them that's uh, quite, ha has a lot of comedy about it. This works as well for Big Brother in that sometimes you're looking for, it's not just the obvious that's coming to you, you're looking for something a little bit dark, a little bit subtle about their personality that's going to come out later on. So, yeah, don't always go for the obvious cast. Look a little bit I think further. it's true, actually, even in the more serious end of... of uh, that actually, sometimes the people that are hardest work, aren't they, can be, yeah, I, can be yeah. some of that turn out to be the best contributors. Yeah, definitely. I mean, what I tend to do for my, with my teams is I would say anyone can bring up or cast or talk about a loud character or a big character. Sometimes, you know, they're great characters, but sometimes it's just someone who's loud. And what are you going to do for six episodes with this person. You know, what's the story they're going to tell and how is that story going to unfold? What I do with my team is I allow people to get on with the job and then I go through the nose and I use my 17 years of intuition and, and having fought for characters that nobody else wanted who became A stories on a BBC Two series. So I know that I have that, that gut feeling and I use it and I go through all the no's and every series I'll find one no who becomes a very big character in the series. Now you can't teach someone to do that at entry level but it comes through experience and the joy if you like people, if you've maybe come from a very different diverse background yourself or you've, you know, you've not just had this one note privileged life and you understand what it feels like to be in a council flat talking to a lady and the next minute you're in a mansion talking to someone else, you know, then you start to read people a bit better and you start to say, mm, he's not boring and sullen actually, he's gloriously grumpy <laughs> and that is different and, and, and I suppose you can't, you, like I say, you just have to um, do it over and over and over and eventually you start to smell something and think, what oh, is there's that, something. Is that just, so is that just experience or is it kind of, you think we've all got a kind of instinct to be able to... If I'm honest, I don't think casting is for everybody <laughs> and I don't think it is an entry-level job just to get your foot into, under, into production and a lot of people don't actually enjoy casting. It's really hard work and it's very laborious and it takes forever to contact every business in the country or whatever. Um, but so I, and I don't think you can learn it but I think the more you it's hard to say the more you do it you might start to learn from previous experience but I do think that I know when I work with people some people have it a bit more they have that instinct they get excited by someone they say no no this person is brilliant and as long as you don't fight for every person that you've been told no about you know you, you, you believe them and you think okay well let's give them a go I used to fight for people but only one in every show and they've been brilliant so um you know, it's, it's, it's easy to get a loud, someone who's loud and, you know, gregarious and think they're a brilliant character. Are they actually that interesting is my question. And have you, have, have there been any kind of instances where you've, you had that sort of instinct about somebody and you've, that actually everyone around you, because it's not just your say-so whether they get cast, is it? There's a whole load of other people in the room <laughs> who are kind of saying yes or no. But is there anyone you can remember you've loved but actually <laughs> ever around you saying oh no they're a bit yeah. but actually you, you've, you've kind of held to your belief and yeah it happened all the time I suppose with Gogglebox it's a little different because it's a collective and actually myself and the executive producer who developed Gogglebox have got very similar taste in people and similar sense of humour so we often get pitched together and we rarely disagree on who we like um, but in previous casting roles, yeah, all the time when I used to cast Don't Tell the Bride, all the time I knew when a, a couple mm. would be good and I knew when they would deliver mm. and I knew when they had more than just being idiots. Like, mm. you know, you're talking about having an idiot and he's like, yeah, that's funny, but actually you need for a BBC 
one hour. You know, you need to have more than that. Um, and I think it is about, you do learn as you go along, mm-hmm. but it's also about having the confidence to push for the people that you believe in. Um, and I think if you generally do believe they'll make good telly, then there's, I, I would never criticise someone for having that belief. And if I had a researcher or an AP or a runner who's telling me, I think they're good for this, these reasons, I would, I would listen to them. Yeah. And I think um, it's about confidence to have to know who to back and who to push and how to push them in the right way. Yeah, no, I agree. Certainly from a, from a kind of exec point of view, when you're with a team who've been casting and, and pe- that you, you hear people in the room, but you, often I'm kind of on the, on the fence about something, then you hear someone really fight for someone passionately. It makes a massive difference. Mm-hmm. It's worth, I think you're right, it's really worth, not everybody. Yeah, well, that's nice. I'm very strongly about someone <laughs> really kind yeah. of pushing my, it. My other main tip is it, what happens is researchers and APs come and might weekly pitch a, bu- a group of people. My one tip to anyone doing casting is learn to think about how do you describe people mm-hmm. and their characters? Because it is no good saying, so Johnny's brilliant, right? He's really chatty. And then the next one comes, Barbara's amazing. She's really chatty. All right, at this point, I'm going to assume they've all got confidence on the phone and they're quite chatty, which is now the new bubbly. So we hear that all the time. How do you, how do we take 1,000 down to 100 and start discussing 100 people? And how does each one have, its, have their own characteristics? So one of my tips is if you're thinking about your friends or people, try, it's almost like swallow thesaurus and, and read a bit of psychology and think, how do I describe this person as opposed to that person? Because when you're pitching someone, I actually prefer to hear, she reminds me of my mad old art teacher crossed with, and I think, oh yeah, no, I get it. I totally get who this person, what they make you feel. Um, you know, it's just, it's a very difficult thing to describe people's characteristics. If you've got to do it over and over and over again, and then sell to your to your producers or execs. You've got to have a you've got to have a really good way of talking about it. It is a selling job in lots yeah, of ways, actually. Yeah. And the, I think the well. other bit of that is is un, I think appreciating what the editorial demands of the program yeah. are as well. Mm-hmm. That, you know, I, you can have, you have people coming in and saying, "Yes, yeah, someone's great, someone's loud, someone's really funny," but actually, there's no sense in the case that the uh, the casting AP researcher is making about the person. They've really sometimes appreciated what the demands what we're looking for in terms of demands mm-hmm. of the programme. It's um, not that's just a big, a one hit, is it? It's yeah. layers. And I think um, if you're talking about one-off and, and long-running series, uh, this was... We had ten, uh, 10 contestants per episode. We won't see them again. So the contestants that came on had to burn brightly. You had to see their character really quickly and clearly, and they only had one hour to show that. With something like Big Brother, you a long-running series, you're seeing them every night for eight weeks, so they have to have real layers. You have to think about how the story's going to develop. Who's going to keep delivering at week seven when they're all sick of it and they want to kind of claw their own eyes out? Um, and how are relationships going to develop between each other? It's not enough to say, okay, this person's a good standalone character. You've really got to think about what they're going to bring, how they're going to react to stuff. And, um, and, and to other people, I suppose, as well. You're sort of casting an ensemble, aren't you? It's, yeah. it, it's a sort of, everything's greater than some of its parts, really. When you find <laughs> a potential Gogglebox person, it must be very exciting. I mean, when you... Oh, yeah, yeah. Because you, you know that some, if they work, we could be kind of with them for a long time and mm. kind of the whole nation could love them. Is it, yeah. is it a struggle to persuade when you do find people, a struggle to persuade them to be... Because that's yeah. about the way the next step. You've got someone you love, they're great, you think they're going to work... You sort of sold them into your producers. 
and the channel, and then it's kind of really persuading them to do it. Yeah, it's really, really tricky. And actually, over the years, it's tricky for completely different reasons. You know, at the beginning, it was kind of convince these people that it's a great, like, we're going to make this brilliant new show where they're going to film you watching telly. <laughs> and then people look at you blankly. and <laughs> So it, that was kind of the convincing job to start with. And then as the series have gone on and the years have gone on and the show's got bigger and bigger, we're now convincing people that don't want to be on telly, don't want to be famous, um, and have never considered doing a TV show to then be on telly every Friday night and get five million people watching it. It almost starts working against you, doesn't so it? So it's going yeah. completely against yeah. us now. Um, so Mary and Giles, I think, for me, with a, I mean, I'm random anyway, but they're a standout for me on that because they feel really different to a lot of the cast. You know, Giles' is dry wit just really comes through and actually that's where the humour comes from. You know, everyone's up and dancing and he just delivers those hard lines mm. that are just hilarious. Um, so they joined two series ago, three series ago, um, and so they're a perfect example of people that would never, ever would have considered being on telly. And actually, they were a recommendation to us. Um, someone who knows um, somebody who works in Gogglebox was like, I know this couple, I think they'd be really good. And I managed to get their number. So I spent hours on the phone to Mary, who's Mary's a journalist. So she kind of creeps into the media world anyway. So the thought of being on telly and giving up her identity, where she's been kind of a mm. journalist who kind of hides behind her writing for years and years and years. So I spent lots of time on the phone to her, and originally she thought they were, they were going to get paid thousands of pounds to be on the show, which was her way, what kept her talking to me for as long as she did. So when I had to deliver the news, that no, <laughs> get a bit of pocket money to you know let us film in your house, and that's about it. Um, but I've convinced them to let me go round to their house. Yeah. You um, say convince them, but that's quite, I mean that's quite a big. I invited you make myself. it sound so easy, but how, <laughs> how do you kind of? Because it's a, you know, how do you persuade people in all, all sorts of spectrums? You've got sort of lighter yeah. stuff, but also more serious programs. How do you, the sort of job of persuading yeah. people to take part who might be a bit reluctant? I to think sp- for Gogglebox, I think I've probably, I, I like to think I've got an easier job than a lot of shows, especially now Gogglebox is known, because I genuinely believe it's a great show to be a part of. We fully protect our cast. You know, our sole aim when we're introducing a family or household is that we want them to be loved by the nation. Um, and we fully protect them and we have a great relationship with all our cast so when I convinced Reverend Kate to do it it was very much a working progress and we spoke a lot about how it worked for her and her job and the church and actually how it works is that Kate will text me after they finish filming and she goes oh might have said the f word tonight can you probably try not to use that and she and I don't even I don't have to check who's in the edit I don't have to check with my exec I, I know that we won't use it. So I'll reply saying, yep, yeah, no probs. And I'll just drop a note saying, don't use it when Kate says fuck, mm. please. <laughs> mm. um, and we don't. And it's fine. And I think I have true belief in what I'm convincing people mm. to do. And I know that if they can put up with being recognised in the supermarket, I think it's a really positive thing to be, mm. people involved with. So I think I truly believe that. So I think I've got an easy job, really. And do you think that makes a big difference, that sense of um, uh, having a kind of belief in what your programme is trying to do? and where it's coming from, so you're able to kind of communicate very openly with people rather than trying to hide something or having some kind of other agenda which you're not being clear about. Does that... Sorry. Yeah, no, sorry, Karen, does that... I wonder what sort of difference that makes or if it does make a difference. I think when you take on it, if you do a programme, you should decide, is this something you want to work on and put your name to? Will you, you know, will you sleep at night? Are you, you might have, you might be able to show where you've got to persuade people to get it on in a hot tub. 
that might be, you know, because you get to live on an island for X amount of weeks, so then that suits you. Um, each person does their own, you're freelance, so you decide what you want to work on. I, things have got much better about, you know, the transparency with contributors is much better now, and I always sleep very well at night, because what we tend to do with factual telly is say, this is what's going to happen, and every step along the way, I'm going to tell you what's next, I'm going to tell you where you are in the process, and I'm going to explain about the casting process. Um, you know, the title's not going to change drastically. Um, the press, um, the Daily Mail might have a filled day with you on this programme. Um, social media can be vile. And what we do is we, put, we, make, we ask people to go through like four different meetings um, with Child Genius. They go through lots of sessions with us. And what we say is you're in full control. You are putting your child on television and you're opening the doors of your house and you are having your parenting methods, you know, can be commented on by all and sundry on social media. Um, so until the final stage, you know, you, you're in control and I say walk away at any stage and it tends to let them decompress a bit and not feel they're signing on a dotted line. Back in the old days, hiya, do you want to be on telly? Here you go. It doesn't, doesn't work like that anymore because of the duty of care and informed consent, which means I know what I've signed up for, is very, is very thorough these days, and rightly so. And what it helps us to do as casting people is not have people then come back and go, how could you have done that to me? Or how could you have put me through this? We can all sleep going, you made a decision yourself to take part. And if it's tough, like child genius, and your child is on a podium in tears, and you can't touch them, We've told them this, and we record ourselves telling them this, um, just so that we, you know we we have to say, look, we've told you all this, and it works because actually I find with Child Genius, although the Daily Mail might give it a bit of a kicking, we keep in touch with all the families, and we we refilm with them, and they're all doing well at school, and we've never had an issue. So I wouldn't do that program if I felt it was any different. And the same, I'm sure you know, with Gogglebox, mm. it's and and Big Brother, it's kind of well, Big Brother, yeah, I think consent hon- honesty is absolutely key. You've got to be honest throughout the entire casting process. I think with Big Brother, um, it's very tricky. The press are absolutely out to get us. Everyone knows how Big Brother works. We have made lives. We've also ruined lives. We have something called the talk of doom. And it is all the possible worst things that could happen to you as a Big Brother contestant. And we, like you said, go through this so many times. And I think it's important throughout the process that you have a good personal relationship with the cast and go through all their concerns, all the positive things that could happen and all the absolute worst things that could happen. And like you said, you can go home and sleep at night if something goes wrong or they don't have the best experience. Not every contestant or contributor you put on TV is going to have a life-changing experience and it's going to be the best thing for them. But you have to make sure as a casting person that you know that you have uh, gone through the right process, that they were... Uh, that you've been 100% honest, and um, that's it. So there's a, going back to this, so there's, there's almost a sort of slightly strange, well, counterintuitive psychology about the whole thing, isn't it? Rather than sort of the hard sell and really persuading people, mm. you're doing quite a lot to, to almost, put, pe- almost mm. put people off, in a sense. You're, yeah. you're kind of giving, or, or you're giving them control over the whole thing. Yeah, I mean, we were talking before about how reality TV and things like Big Brother, a lot of the kind of 18 to 25-year-olds now have grown up with reality TV, and they are under the mentality of kind of, I'm mad me, put me on TV, you know, mm. I'm going to give it all this. 
And actually, you don't want wannabes. We are now trying to find the kinds of people that wouldn't be on TV. And actually, it's more about, it is more about persuading those people that you would never, ever don't have a TV, you'd never see on TV, because they make the more interesting characters. We've seen all those uh, wannabe contestants so many times. I think so. we've got a good clip, um, actually, of um, Mail series, um, bringing back Borstal, which, mm. was, which was a sort of classic example of that, wasn't it, yeah. that you were focusing on people who... Yeah. Well, you, you explain, because they're a great cast. So, a couple of years ago, we made this series, um, like I say, taking young people back to Borstal, and they were 99% street cast, and this lad we're about to watch, I personally found in Central Drive in Blackpool, and I was wandering around all day. I was up with my team, and I was sort of showing someone the ropes a bit, and um, saw this lad in with a group of kids, and went up to him and said... Okay, you locals, do you know who's who and what's what? We're looking for some people who are constantly getting into trouble. Kind of want to change that, though. Um, and the other lads were being silly, and he just locked eyes with me, and he went, he was stoned, and he just went, what? And he focused and said, tell me, tell me. And then I knew in that moment I'd found the star of the series, and I 100% promised, I just kind of went back to London and went, I found the A story of the series. He is going to win people over. He's adorable. He's brutally honest, and he's had um, a background in care. Now, again, going, hey, you on the street, do you want to be on this programme? Expose him and then walk away is not the way to make television with people, vulnerable people like this. So what happened was, you'll see the clip, you'll see why, but I met him, we talked to him through several meetings, we paid for him and his girlfriend to come on all the travels down to London to meet us. He had, they all have a psychological evaluation. But I thought that what happened would happen. I did not expect this to happen on the first day of filming, um, or the second day of filming, actually, it was. But, um, and then you're left going, what now? Did you build up quite a strong yeah. relationship with him through the, through the yeah. making of the series? So, absolutely. I was up on location. I was senior producer over the whole series, and these lads all knew it was like I was the one that got them into this, and they're wearing shorts like primary school kids. They've all been drug tested, so we knew what drugs they were coming off. So we had, like, after one week, a massive weed come down and MCAT come down. But what happened with Spence was he, we adored him. Um, and then he just said, I'm going, my, I'm, I'm leaving, as a lot of them did, because they couldn't sort of take all the, you know, stick with it. But actually, we went and looked for him on the streets of Blackpool with the governor, and it looked like a setup. But in the programme, we found him coming out of A and E with some sore ribs about something, and he chose to come back, and we set him up with some job interviews on on the programme, and he got himself some work afterwards. He's had a baby since, but we stay in touch as a company. Um, it's it's this nearly two years later, but you know it's there's a decompression time of usually a few months at the most. But with someone like that, you've got to keep saying how are you doing, how's life. I am interested in you. Otherwise, what you've done is gone street casting. Hey, you, you'll be great for our program. You delivered us an amazing episode there. Bye. And you know you just can't do that if you've got any conscience. And you know he is someone that I feel is one of those moments where and the minute I knew I met him, I knew he'd be mm. brilliant for the programme. I mean, the worst moment in any production is when you've kind of, you, you've got your cast, mm. the, the, the channel loved them, you started, for, or you're just about to start filming or started filming, and someone drops out. Um, mm. And that's when you're really stuck. And I guess it's, it's those moments when the quality of the relationship that the casting, yeah. um, particularly the casting researchers and APs, have developed with those contributors, that's when it really comes to kick in, isn't it? It's really, really, that was really vital. To, that, was, sorry, Dr. That was supposed to start with 20, 20 lads, 
and 10 standbys. We started with 14 and no standbys. Mm -hmm. And we had a schedule to deliver a program. And we had to pick each, each lad up from their home by car because we couldn't leave them to get public transport to get them to Northumberland. And so they were each picked up. And I was at the other end counting them in. And we got to 14. We went... It's enough to make a series. Let's go. There's, you know, the whole place has been rigged. It's like months of work. I'm cackling myself that six are going to turn up, you know, um, and actually 14 was enough. But, of course, when they all decide that they've had enough after two days, I was the one, as I was with Biggest Loser, having to sort of go, don't go, don't leave. If you leave now, you can't come back. And it's so my job is often that person that they come to to say, I've had enough, I want to go. But I think often as well, in, in, these, in all these shows, the, the per, it's often about the, the relationship between the person you're casting and the person that's found them but that, that it's for them that in, a, in some funny way they're doing the show as well it's as much about mm. you in that instance I imagine yeah. and doing yeah. it for you as it, as it for the show so yeah, you it's, can a very, get it's a very key relationship mm. yeah. hi guys my name's Sophie um thank you for that it was very insightful and uh, enjoyable to listen to um I know you mentioned a bit about duty of care however I just wanted to um ask you particularly with big brother i know you mentioned the fact that you make the contestants aware that of the kind of talk of doom and it could make or break them but how do you ensure that a contestant is kind of mentally prepared for that sort of process because i know particularly with big brother it can be they can come out and con people are continuously booing them and getting ridiculed all the time so and obviously you say it can make or break a life but it's kind of having that thing on your conscience if it did if it did break someone so how do you kind of go about ensuring that somebody isn't so vulnerable that that could have a detrimental effect on their life and their health I know you mentioned you had a duty of care with that individual afterwards but is there something in place to make sure that someone's prepared to go through that sort of process absolutely yeah there's a really really stringent process which actually i have to set out right at the beginning before we start casting with lawyers with channel five with um, the lawyers at endemo and, and kind of all the senior team to make sure that we are looking after our contestants throughout the process right up to six months a year afterwards so in terms of big brother right from the beginning of casting we make sure that they're aware of um you know, when they come to audition, we give them a speech about um, what could happen to you, like booing, like rejection, uh, haters on social media, all of that. So they, they are aware of what they're getting into before they even audition. We have um, filmed speeches again where we talk to them for up to an hour about all their concerns um, and again, give them that kind of talk of doom. We work really, really closely with two independent um, psychologists, and we do psychological evaluations with, um, we do two with each contestant, and that relationship carries on. So um, I'm always there, as well as a psychologist, uh, right up to when they're on the show. Um, when they're in the show, um, there's a big welfare team that looks after them and liaises with their friends and family. Uh, the psychologists, again, we are monitoring everything about how they are, what they're eating, what they're drinking. You know, we, we really do look after them. And then we offer uh, the psychologist uh, contact with the psychologist for six months up to a year after they've been on the show. Um, and again, they have that, but they also have me and the casting team as well. So I do have really personal relationships with these people 
um, and it is exhausting at times. I get calls at one in the morning of people crying. My boyfriend goes absolutely crazy about it. But you've just got to make sure if you're putting these people on TV that they aren't vulnerable because at the end of the day, it will come back on you. They'll ask you, what, why did you do this? Um, so, yes. So one of the programmes I've watched recently was um, a Darren Brown programme which, in which he basically, long story short, convinced a four or eight people, I think, to push somebody off a roof. How <laughs> is that possible? Because usually in past ones, he's convinced people to rob banks and this, that and the other. And then they, they show this shot of them lying down with some form of like patterned colour thing shining on their face as if it's some psychological... Rectifying machine or something like that—it's mad. But that I could, I could believe that. But with this, he just walked up to them. Like as soon as they pushed him, they pushed the person off. He just walked in, and when they were laughing, I was like, "How can you put anybody through that and then laugh about it at the end and then not mention that you've helped them afterwards?" And you—do you know what I mean? You, you say with uh, you know what I mean. So how how is that possible? Yeah. I thought the same when I watched it. I was like, because they're not, yeah, it didn't feel as fun as a lot of his other stuff, did it? I, I, I mean, I, no one's worked on that. Series, did we they? watch so. programmes and have questions. Yeah. We, you know, we, we work on what we work on by choice, and sometimes I'll think, hmm, or how. I wonder or, how they did that, and, yeah, you know, what they did. They'll have stringent, they'll have a very big psychological pre evaluation. The thing with Darren Brown stuff is it's more complex how it's made than it looks. And I think that, you know, you don't, they don't want to give away the trade secrets of it. And I don't, I've never worked on it, but I think it's, it's hard for us to comment on it here. But we do watch stuff and, and we're constantly thinking, hold on, how, why, you know. Um, but they, they would have had a big duty of care afterwards, off screen afterwards of those people, I'm mm. sure, because it's a big, uh, robust production company mm. and that Channel 4 have allowed him to make several shows. And I'm sure, yes, they push it each time, but mm. there will be, I would say, pretty much guaranteed that Objective would have had some aftercare. Mm. Um, they also work really close um, with the friends and family as well. I had someone that worked on it, she wouldn't tell me all the secrets, mm. but they, um, so when they're picking that person, you should always think about references. So they would have been working with their friends and partners and family who would have been kind of in on it to make sure that that person was psychologically robust enough to do it. And then, like you said, the uh, informed consent and the duty of care would come after it. And obviously, if, they, if he wasn't willing to sign it, the release form, then that show couldn't go on air. So they've got to be pretty um, 100% that this guy's going to be able to take it and then uh, allow it to go out. <laughs> I mean, we watch the island now and go, how come they're allowed to, like, fall off cliffs? They're going to I've done something where they've gone, oh, they can't go up that little ledge there, yeah. you know. So television, it, you know, the boundaries are being pushed all the time. And again, uh, you know, that wouldn't be about coming back on casting. That would come back on the execs of the programme if anyone harmed themselves seriously, you know. But The psychological thing is interesting, isn't it? Because I think most kind of um, uh, established series now and reputable production companies... And broadcast as well would insist on a lot of sort of psychological testing um, beforehand and also support through it, through the production to see if people are kind of robust enough to do whatever they're doing on television. Mm. Um, but I just wondered when you're kind of out meeting people for the first time, if that's one of the things you're sort of alert for, if there are you know, red flags that ever go off and you think, actually, this person isn't going to be t- strong enough or there's an issue with this person that might, not, might mean it's difficult mm. to kind of put them on telly. Is that something that you I actually don't, and probably you guys will disagree with this, but if I, if there's, not if there's massive alarm bells going off, but if you think, I, I, I'm trying to think of an example, but um, 
you can get to that later down the line. When you're first out on the streets and meeting people, you don't want to be the person making a rash decision and saying, oh, I'm not sure the way they're behaving to that waiter. I'm, I'm actually not going to cast them. Mm. I, I want to find out more. I want to have a telephone conversation or meet them face-to-face privately. So I would, on first meeting, never discount anyone unless it's blatantly obvious that there's a reason why you shouldn't. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so you keep a very yeah. kind of open I do, open yeah, mind, yeah, personally, yeah. You become quad psychologist that you, you are not the real psychologist. It's interesting, though, for you, if you're in, interested in the facets of people, what's quite nice is that you learn about people, you have your own opinions. Like you say, you should never block anybody. But it, you, you start to find out whether, you know, you're tallying in with what's going on and whether mm. your thoughts are actually it's, this is right you know it's it's it's, it's a great um, job I think the for amateur that. psychologist thing is yeah. a really good tip I think all uh, the way amateur. <laughs> oh yeah all the way through programming from casting and research yeah. all the way to PDing I think for, especially the people based stuff that we're talking about if you're if you sort of a kind of have an amateur psychologist interest mm. yeah. it's that's a great great strength to have because it means you're interested and you're asking questions and you're you're keen to probe what's going on underneath the surface what motivates people so mm. it's a good um it's a good thing to have I mean, the, the, my final thing on the duty of care thing is that as entry level, you don't have to worry yourself with that. You have to be the team that finds all these amazing numbers coming in, all these amazing people. But if you progress through casting, you have to then at some point know how to put the rest in, in place to have them signed off. And so you should start to be interested in that by the time you're in AP. Definitely have to be, you know, know what to do as a producer. And then, but, you know, and so we all will take charge of all that stuff. But, um, you know, a researcher will not be expected to run people through a psych evaluation and pl- plan it all. But knowing it exists and this other protocols, duty of care, um, informed consent stuff exists is really important at, at entry level, I think, and research and AP level. Don't think it's just about, hey, I've just found someone. Hey, here's my card. I can put you on telly. Obviously, that's not how it is now. But it's, it's fun and creative for a researcher and AP for, for a lot of it. It's a very big headache and a very worrisome time getting them signed off because you, don't, you do want to do the right thing and you don't want to do the wrong thing by somebody. So it can keep you awake at night if you're worried about somebody's suitability for the programme. That's why you obviously have lots of support around us to help evaluate people and any sort of my big sort of thing would be any any sort of concerns or worries or just niggling doubts you have about someone whether it's about their background or their family or their psychological state it's just to just continually talk and flag things up because small Mm. things do sometimes have a habit of becoming quite big issues as Mel says Mm. down the line you were talking about getting access and sort of researching the type of people especially for something like child genius how do you um like kind of get access to really difficult communities. So I can, example of something like Muslim Drag Queen that was on um, dra- that was on Channel 4, mm. or something along those lines where the community that you want to cast from are maybe very reclusive or very sort of like non-TV. How do you get access to those type of communities? That's an interesting question because those kind of Channel 4 docs, one-offs or two-part docs on you know, a, a community like that, um, are very popular, and I don't, you know, I don't believe anyone can just wade in and cold call. I think you need to um, start building up. Um, I do a lot of some access stuff, and you you build up the trust first by, um, you know, by phone rather than email. So you 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 would once you know where there's a, a community spokesperson or somebody who 
is willing to take the call from you. You know, it's a frank and honest phone call, not a cold email going, hello, we'd like to make a programme about you guys. You know, you start to say, you know, and what I do is say, can I come and see you? So you don't pitch too much over the phone because the minute you make eye contact, trustworthiness, you know, all that stuff, that, that feeling you have for people. So if it's access, we tend to say, can we come and see you? And I'll take you for coffee, we'll go for a drink, whatever. And you say, this is really interesting, um, and this is why, and this is how we see it. What would you want to see? And li- let, they, let them have a bit of say creatively about you know, what, what they'd like to see in a programme. And you just start talking it through. And, and it's amazing. It's, it's, it's amazing how you do get that excess quite quickly. If you get off of your bum and get on the train. I went on a train to a disability coach for a football team this week in Everton. And I went up there for a 20-minute meeting and came back. And I got the access um, because he said, yeah. have you come all the way just for me? Mm. And I said, yes, because I think what you're doing is brilliant. But he couldn't respond by email quick enough because I was really impatient. So I was like, boom, on the train, go. And so, you know, you might have someone on your production team who is a Muslim or gay Muslim who is interested in exploring it. And yes, it might be better for that person to go and not just, you know, white woman, age 45, walking in and going, oh, you know, this would be good. So I think it's about being sensitive about, you know, them, you know, what they need. I'd also say in those sort of more... um, I suppose, uh, serious or documentary access type areas, it's really good to try and de-TVize things. What, by what, what, what I mean mm. is not uh, use words like the show and we're looking for contributors. You know, just take all that out of it. Um, it's almost making it a bit more serious and untelly and you're kind of meeting them kind of face-to-face as people rather than as a potential for a television programme. It's, it's quite good, I think, because mm. people can get a bit put off by that. So I was wondering, um, with big endurance game shows in which people might actually get hurt, how do you make sure in the casting process they're aware of the risks? And then also, when it's actually happening, how do you ensure you have duty of care if someone, I don't know, like breaks their ankle or, I don't know, if something happens like that? There were so many injuries, by the way. I imagine, yeah, that's what I was thinking. So we uh, built up... um, Basically, we were a little bit vague reeling them in. We said it was a physical comedy game show, and so we got lots of people to apply. We had to get 100 contestants in about three weeks, so we didn't have much time. But then, um, again, we worked with the lawyers to have a really stringent process, so the next time we spoke to them, we gave them a bit more information about how they were to expect injuries and knocks and bruises. Um, And then the next stage, we would give them examples of games, examples of the types of injuries they could get, um, and then we do things like medical medicals with their doctors, medical self-disclosures, um, and we just build it up, really. Again, we did the film speech about what types of injuries they could um, incur during the show, and then on, um, on site, we obviously had a really good care team there, um, medical officers or whatever you call them, doctors, I suppose, and no, we haven't had any complaints, touch wood, yet. And two series have gone out now. So there were injuries, but if, you, if they know about it and you're 100% honest, then they shouldn't be coming back on you because they're fully aware of what they're about to take part in. Question that I had was, listening to you lot, there's so much like, empathy and nurturing. And, and I'm wondering about the process of like, handing over the story and what, how much collaboration you have with directors once mm. you've found the people, you've built the relationship... What's that handover process like? That's a very good question, yeah. Um, 
I've stayed with Forstall. I stayed on because I wanted to see it through because I'd found and personally found a lot of those lads. So I said, I want to work on it. Sometimes you just hand over, like you say, with lots of your ideas for editorial, your ideas for potential storylines. And you often see that unfold. So you do feel that you have a vested interest. I do also very quickly say to researchers and APs in casting, try and stay on the programme and don't let them say, oh, you're just doing casting. Because casting is not about finding the people. It's also about the joy of watching the stories unfold and you, you being the one they know the most in the, in the production. You know, and you, you are there to see it through and out the other side. So I would say stand your ground and say to the series producer, I love casting this series and I love these people we found. I really want to work on the actual... Because it's all valid. Everything we're doing is just parts of a jigsaw bringing together a programme. But I always say if a company tells you you're only going to be a casting researcher or AP and then finish, I would fight to stay on. Is that your experience? At yeah, well, I've been really oh. lucky to do lots of different jobs on... Gogwalk. So I've not just done the casting. I've uh, I started as a casting producer, then I went into the field and became a, a producer director. Then I went into the edit, and actually, uh, so I know all of our families really, really well from casting all the way through. So I think I'm really privileged in that sense. But for me, it's quite different depending on the families I'm introducing. But I kind of hold on to them as quickly as I for as long as I can. Sorry, and then um, I make a decision about when I feel like I can hand them over. It's almost like nurturing a child. You know, when when do you feel like you can hand them over to the team? Because I can't keep hold of them forever. Mm. And I don't think that's good for them. Although I, they've always got a line to me. Um, so I make a decision as when I feel like they've settled in the show, they've been accepted on the show. You know, they kind of have got used to the process in terms of filming, um, and then I kind of hand them over to the edit team who then give them nice edit feedback each week and that kind of thing so for me it's judgment and intuition mm. in terms of when you feel like they can be kind of handed over but I always just check in, check in on them just because I've become quite fond of them quite quickly <laughs> so I stay in touch with them anyway um, but Gogglebox is a, it's a different one because it's a fast turnaround show so they have teams coming into the house every week so they do very quickly build up relationships with the, with the filming teams because they're in their homes um, and unless I'm their director that, they don't have that with me so when I feel like they've got a strong relationship with their director that's when I kind of take a little bit of a back, back seat um, because there are directors in the house and obviously the edit can give them feedback in terms of what's going to be in the show each mm. week so it's just about each family really and, and what they need If you're casting you're the one that's making the initial approach and if they're going to do it, they, they do the programme, it's because they've invested in you, really, a lot of it. It may, it may be that actually you're needed all the way through to keep their kind of connection to the programme going. But it's, again, I think you're right, it's, it's judging that moment when the, the programme's this bigger thing in their life as well. Mm -hmm. There's someone else on the team that they kind of really connect with yeah. and you can kind of start to let that go. On Child Genius, I am actually, the timing is right to hand over because it is so exhausting finding 20 families and such a long process. We IQ test 30 children. We, we do NVR, nonverbal papers with 100 children. We go to their houses several times. Actually, I normally am like, la, la, la. <laughs> Here you go, directors. And then they bed in. They've done the home visits. And they bed in and they, they take five families each. And I only get involved if there's an issue. Um, but I'm normally less worried about the overlapping. I'm ready to hand them over. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, um, I've done a bit of casting before, so I was just wondering um, where I've had to like street cast and phone bash and everything. And I was just wondering which is the, in your experience, the most successful way of finding contributors, and where is the strangest place you found someone to be on TV? 
Um, yeah, the strangest place I've ever found some was in a crisp factory in um, Northumberland. And they were for the Almost Impossible Game Show. They didn't have a TV. Um, they were total, total dweeb. But again, the funniest, one of the funniest people I've ever met in my entire life. And I kept saying, you're so funny, you're so brilliant. No one had ever told him this. And he was like, am I? Like, he was just really great. As I said before, increasingly, social media is a really, really brilliant resource. You have access to millions of people from all across the world, and it's instant. Um, you can instantly hit people. You can pay for adverts now. It's really, really good. So I would really encourage anyone at any level in casting to make sure they have a TV Twitter, a TV Facebook page, and then you've got your black book of um, contributors. But nothing really beats getting on the blower and talking to people and going and meeting people. That is the bread and butter of casting. The reason we're in casting is we love people and we're very persuasive and we're very charming. So I think um, <laughs> get in front of people, chat to them, and um, yeah, that's what I would say. Take an interest in them. That's yeah. the thing, isn't it? Yeah. And I would always say street casting <laughs> because I would never cast a show any other way now because I just think the people you meet when you're out and about are just so much more interesting and just you're just you're finding people that you didn't know existed and I mm. think it's exciting and actually it's it can be if you work hard really fast turnaround so I send teams out for a week they head up somewhere we decide where to go have a little idea, Storm, what accent do we fancy, what are we looking for? They go off on a Monday, come back on a Friday, and they pitch people they've already filmed and got on camera. And then so within a week, and I remember my first ever week on Gogglebox, we had met um, the Vaughan Webbers, who are the, the dad with the German dad. We met them in our, my first ever week on Gogglebox was me, a researcher and an AP. Went up to Liverpool, went around, spent the week meeting people, filming people, came back to the Vaughan Webbers, and I knew, I knew that I just... They were hilarious. They were, we, lost, we lost Silent J along the way. But we still got Ralph, who's brilliant. And for me, you can't be spending a week and delivering something. But not all companies can afford to send you out on the road all the time. Mm-hmm. So it just depends on your budget. And that's because that's how you cast mm-hmm. it. And it's because um, it's a lot of money sending people it's around expensive. the country. Mm-hmm. Social media doesn't work for my stuff as much, funnily enough. Um, actually, it's, it's the middleman organisation who you charm into sending out an everyday mail out uh, to 30,000 people. Mm. That sort of organisational middleman really works for me. Um, just with what type of programmes I do, social media is, we do it, but it doesn't bring in the numbers. And a lot of it is um, journalistic seeking out of stories in the, in, the, in the papers across the whole of the UK. Mm. That works because it's storytelling a lot of it. Well, I hope you've all found that useful. We certainly enjoyed doing it, so thank yeah, you. Thank you. Thanks very much thank for your you time. Thank you for coming on the Sunday. Want to hear more about casting? We cover casting and auditioning for TV and feature films in an episode of BAFTA's own podcast series, The Guru. That's episode nine of The Guru, casting and auditioning, available now on iTunes and other podcasting apps.